Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Welcome, dear listener, to episode 259. This is part three of a discussion with Nicholas Arone. He's a senior manager in product management at VMware, focusing in cloud management and cloud automation products. If you missed the earlier parts of our discussion, let's give you a quick recap. In part one of our discussion, which was episode 257, we talked about Nicholas having an early interest in technology and some aspirations to work for IBM one day. Nicholas shared the story of getting the role at IBM and how he later made the business case for and helped implement Agile and Scrum methodologies as part of a development team. We also discussed the difference between product management and product ownership. In part two of our discussion with Nicholas in episode 258, we talked about the difference between a product manager and a technical product manager and how technical one might need to be in each case. We discussed the different hiring manager expectations when looking for product manager candidates. And Nicholas told the story of coming to the decision to leave IBM after so many years there, how he prioritized and how he processed that change to move on to something different. This week, as the trilogy of interviews comes to an end, we're going to discuss the responsibilities of being a manager, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Some similarities to management responsibility outside the role of manager, and some of the progression paths into full-on people management if that's something that's on your radar. Nicholas will share the importance of reputation in his career, as well as in all of ours. He'll talk to us about a mantra he's adopted that's similar to that of Mary Poppins. And as we get into this interview, think about what being a divergent thinker means to you. Let's see if what you think it is matches what Nicholas has to say. Here we are with part three and the conclusion of our series of discussions with Nicholas Arone. I like this idea of validating assumptions that we have. And we've actually had some previous guests who went into management where their management kept validating, hey, do you want to go into management? Do you want to go into management? Some guests, they had their assumptions that they never wanted to be a manager challenged and said, oh, you absolutely should. So for you, was the taking on of managing people in this role that I would call the player coach role, because you have some individual contributor responsibilities as a product manager today and some people management, was that something you asked for? Was that something that just sort of happened? Or was that something someone came to you and said, I really think you should do this, and it wasn't even on your radar? Yeah. So early on, I think it was an aspiration for sure. 
I'm glad I wasn't early on in my career because I think it helped to grow and develop me and mature me, if I'm being honest with myself. As it went on, there was kind of that affirmation, if you will. People said, hey, I think you'd be good at this, or I can see that you have this natural kind of way of communicating and leading and being able to teach and mentor people, right? And again, you bring up some interesting points, right? If you like to mentor, if that's something that you like to do, and maybe it's also, hey, I don't see enough people in a certain field or in a certain role, you can certainly, and I would encourage you, and there's platforms out there for people to go and and kind of pro bono, be mentors and get connected with people. That's one way. Being a manager, right? There's a difference between being a manager and a leader. Manager is the conventional sense of, in my mind, kind of HR responsibilities. I got to make sure I'm reviewing you. I'm doing all that stuff, right? And sometimes it is what people say is the least fun part of being a manager. It comes with the job, right? You can't, this isn't, you know, hey, I can carve out the pieces I like and then leave the other ones I don't like. So it's, it's kind of, unfortunately, to some people's dismay and all or nothing. So in the most recent years, it has been because of acknowledgement and saying, hey, I'm going to go back into management. Through my different roles, I've been IC, I've done management, and it's kind of just kind of grown into I'm willing to do it and focus in on what we need to do. And also part of me trying to, and probably the reason again, uh, you all do what you do is, I wish someone 15 years ago had sat me down and said a few choice things to me, right? Or said, you need to be worried about your career and here's what you need to focus in on. And so I'm trying to pay it back or pay it forward for the people that over my career have done it in you know small ways, but for the lack of education that's out there that we don't have available to us, maybe it's a little bit better now with some online forms and so forth that people can go, but that's not personal, right? You want to get to know someone. And part of that is, well, I think you'd be good at this and here's why. And a lot of the times I think, uh, you know, Nick, to, to kind of your statement with, you know, someone's come and said, I think you'd be good at this. Some of us don't always see what other people see in us. So having that relationship and being able to say, no, I think you can do that. Even if you're like, no, I'm, I'm petrified. I'm, I'm not a good public speaker. I'm not this. But like, no, no, you do just fine. And people taking a chance and then loving it. And the worst case is, listen, if you don't like it, take a step back. That's fine. But at least try it. I guess maybe you need to find an organization where it's safe to take on some of those responsibilities. And then if it, if you don't like it, or if you're not good at it, to take a step back without having that be like a, a major negative on your career. Because sometimes it's just point in time, right? It's like, ah, well, you know, this isn't the right time for me to do this, you know, or I love the game too much. I, I got to, I got to stay in the Java. Timing is, is always the key, right? They say location, 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 timing, timing, timing is everything. But I think it is, again, that fear of change, that fear of the unknown. But again, we go back to that list. We go back to that mental list or that actual list. What are you trying to go after? What is motivating you? And, and it could be the other way, and we haven't really talked about it here just yet, but you're in your current role, whether it be an existing role in your current company or in another company, you may have a gap in your skills, right? And you're like, but I really want to do that role. I think I'd be good at it. You need to stretch yourself. You need to be willing to stretch yourself to close that gap. Part of it could be someone willing to take a, a chance on you, right? Like, hey, you have all these skills. I can see that you can articulate stuff. I have no problem with you coming up to speed. You, you know, I can put you through a course or whatever it is. 
but that is also dependent on someone's willingness and ability because they're taking a chance on you. Likewise, if I was to take a chance on someone and say, listen, I know I'm not going to find someone with this skill, so I'm going to have to hire within and train them up, or I'm going to hire them with you know externally and bring them in. And so that's where, from a product management perspective, I'm really kind of bullish on making sure that we are mentoring and leading future product leaders, because it is kind of this thing where, yeah, there's all these courses now, and those are great, right? But there's always this question of academia versus the real world. Academia doesn't tell you how to handle your career. Academia doesn't tell you, they may mention, yeah, you'll have politics, but they don't really tell you how you navigate it. And is there really a one, a one size fits all for doing that anyway? These are the things that you have to learn you know, on the job, as they say. That absolutely makes sense. The opportunity, which can be golden, is to to take on like maybe a, a little slice of it, right? To get some some practical experience. And if you can do both, if you know there's like an enrichment course or a training that the employer will pay for to kind of stretch your skills, and at the same time you're kind of doing a little bit of a slice of that job while you're still doing your 40 hour a week job, then you're kind of getting a taste of it, the practical experience of it, the academic background of it. And that might be the ideal, the ideal, but you know, oftentimes we don't get the ideal, but if you can strive to do a little bit, you know, just, Hey, you're a product manager. Can I shadow you for a day or two? You know, like people usually are fine with that. Right. Yeah. I was just going to say, I, I think a few nuggets there to pull out is one you know, I call it the fear of the what if. What if I do this and I'm not successful? I think that's legitimate concern. You should ask yourself going in, can I do that? I think that's where a mentor and or again, if it's your manager and it's the same person or or not, so be it depending on who you have available, but someone that is looking out for you and saying, listen, I think you're biting off too much or hey, you're doing a great job, right? You want that feedback loop. So that's certainly important. And then to what you just said, John, some companies, right, they have programs, shadowing programs, uh, where you go for you know maybe a week, a month, whatever it is, right? What I would highly encourage people to do is maybe you know if you're getting into product management, you're like, well, I, I think I know what it's about. I've seen people do it. I've seen several different people do it, and they all do it slightly similar in some ways, but different in others. Go find someone that you feel comfortable with and say, listen, could I just start attending calls with you or going to meetings with you and kind of get a general feel for what what a day in the life of a PM looks like. And that might answer and that may light the fire of like, yeah, this is exciting. I want to do this. And I think that gives you even more of that ammunition to pursue it harder. Or it may give you that data point to say, yeah, again, I like this part of it, but I don't like that part of it. And what I will tell you is while, again, you may get into bigger organizations where tasks are are somewhat compartmentalized, uh, the reality is just be cautious that you have to take the, the good with the bad, the likes with the dislikes, so to speak. When it comes to figuring out how much to invest in someone you're going to take a risk on, if I was someone who is going to go work in product management, I heard you say earlier, I might not necessarily have to be an expert in that product. Is there a good way to maybe ask in an interview for that or some other thing you're trying to go do? What's the allowable ramp time? for me in this role so that I can be successful? 
how how have you heard that uh, addressed maybe by the interviewee? I think one, you can kind of always take ownership and address it head on. Hey, I get the interview, right? So that's the first thing, right? Let's assume we get the, the, the initial HR pre-screen interview, right? Call it out. Say, listen, I read one because it shows you're being attentive and you actually read the job posting. You didn't just look for PM, click the button and say, well, if they call me, then I'll figure it out. So, so you read through it, you understand it. You say, listen, I just want to say like, I have got these. I check all these boxes here, right? I see under either required or maybe it's even under nice to have, there's a particular skill. Hey, I have to brush up on it or I'm just completely uh, in the dark on that. And say, is there an opportunity should this move forward that, you know, whether it be based on the company providing it or I'm willing to do it, you know, myself on my own time, you know, is there an allowable tolerance, right? Is it 30 days, whatever? A lot of the times, if the recruiter or the TA, you know, the, the talent acquisition person hasn't had that conversation with the hiring manager, they might tell you, listen, not that big of a deal, but why don't you have that conversation with the hiring manager, work that out with them. So it all depends on how equipped. They may just be looking for at that point, if they've got hundreds of candidates, it may be, listen, I just want to let you know you're up against some steep competition or that may be a deal breaker, right? I'll check with the manager. So we could go a few different ways, but I think owning it and showing that you are, you're kind of acknowledging it and owning it, that is probably some of the, the, the best way that I would do because it shows that you care enough and that you're interested in the job enough that you read it, but that you also see it as a potential stumbling block that you can overcome. And in regard to the type of role that you have with the partial individual contributor, partial people manager. I didn't actually know that that was a role people could have until sometime in the last six months when we've interviewed person after person who's done this. Is that a pretty common stepping stone into full-on people management that you've seen? Yeah. I mean, again, organizations being different and, and so forth, you, you, know, you may have the, the player coaches you were, you were referring to. You may have the pure, depending on the um, the reporting structure. Like if you have ten or fifteen reports, depending on how your organization is, if it's if it's rather deep, wide, etc., you may not have the bandwidth to be able to own your own products and strategy. You ultimately own the portfolio at a high level, for all intents and purposes. You are ensuring that your PMs are executing and understand the strategy. And being the person where, where, yes, they should be communicating, but you also are kind of that additional layer to say, well, wait a minute, have you talked to, to John or Sally? Because what you're saying, they seem to be doing something similar over here. You all should probably get together. So it's kind of a little bit of the oversight, but also that, you know, there's that coaching aspect of it as well as being the manager and owning it from a responsibility perspective. I think that maybe our understanding of it has change. I, I think I'm, you know, again, going back to the player coach aspect, you know, for example, I remember our friend and colleague, well, I guess in my case, former colleague, uh, John Nicholson got into technical marketing, you know, on, I think initially the vSAN product, right? And his manager at the time, Ken Warnberg, was still doing tech marketing, you know, like he would still go and speak at conferences and, and he hadn't, just cut off all of his tech marketing, you know, job responsibilities, you know, he, he took on some of that stuff. And like, you know, I, I 
have no idea, like as an insider, like, you know, it was just my, my outsider viewpoint. It didn't look like he was, you know, quote unquote, just filling in for people. It looked like he was still took that, you know, part of the job, like as part of his job responsibilities. Now, over time, he took a step back and I still see him out there doing it. Again, this is my external perception. Now it looks a little bit more like, you know, quote unquote, filling in. I don't know, maybe is it just a transitional thing? Um, or is it has to do with a specific role? Or or maybe there's even like a meta aspect to it, right? Which is maybe as a product manager, you have people who are working on specific aspects of a, an overall larger product. And, you know, managing a product marketing team, you also take like larger ownership of that larger aspect of the product or, or product family. I think you're right. At the end of the day, if you're kind of that PM of PMs, let's just use it, or tech marketer of tech marketers, right? And you're owning that, there is that certain reality that whether it be that someone left for whatever reason, attrition, you know, they got a new opportunity. And again, that's where it's hard as, as, you know, as people managers, right? Because you're both tasked with making sure that individual is growing, right? For, for the selfishness of your team and the company and your customers. But at some point, there may be an opportunity where you're like, like you've gotten to that point. There's not an opportunity here and you need to, to move on. And ultimately, that person does need to potentially step in and say, listen, just because the person went away and whether or not you have a, another headcount to backfill or whatever, business has to go on, right? So that person has to step in and whether you assign it to another individual on the team, if you try and cut it off, which is always kind of dangerous because you're cutting it across people, you do need to step in until you can get that person potentially backfilled and then pass along those responsibilities or maybe decide, hey, if we're having to cut for financial reasons, maybe it looks at restructuring the team, right? All these are legitimate and realistic possibilities. It just, it just depends. Structural reasons. That makes sense. Yeah. I wanted to make sure that we talk a little bit about product management, maybe again, grounded in your, your career progression. It looked like after you left IBM, you had a couple different roles that centered around, you know, maybe a people manager. I wasn't clear on whether or not you were. And it also focused like pretty solidly on that kind of software development, you know, maybe agile methodology and now that you had practical experience with that, like that was a, a, a highly sought after skill. But then at a certain point, it looks like, you know, that morphed into that product management role. Is, is, am I reading that correctly? Yeah, no, I think that's very astute. So after I left IBM, definitely took a lot of what I learned in the transformation aspect of bringing Scrum into a development team, restructuring it, trying to, you know, get some metrics and goals to achieve from a performance perspective, a productivity perspective. Absolutely. Part of it is, again, I mentioned earlier, sometimes you have opportunities that pop up uh, because they drop in your lap. You have people in your network that reach out to you. That's part of what kind of happened with me. So left you know, IBM, went on to my next role, had a great opportunity there. And what I always like to say is, probably get kind of harassed for saying it this way, but if you ever think about Mary Poppins, when does Mary Poppins come? When she is needed. And she goes when she is no longer needed. And I've always kind of adopted that mantra because at the end of the day, I like to solve problems. I like to leave things better than I found them. I take heart and I take a lot of pride in 
working with others and trying to deliver the outcomes. And it's not always easy, right? There's, there's bureaucracy and politics and the whole nine yards. But that is part of my career, right? When, when we kind of get to a point and I've exhausted it, right? Where it's like, listen, maybe there's another opportunity within the company. Let me, let me search it out. But if I've come and done it and hit kind of that glass ceiling where, listen, it's either I'm not in the right role now because I lack the authority to make those changes that are needed, or there's another opportunity out there that's kind of on my career trajectory. And again, weighing those, money, flexibility, all that stuff. So then after that, went into consulting for a bit. Uh, I always say I did my career backwards because earlier on, I was like hoping to be able to, to do a lot of travel. And so it didn't happen that way, but going to consulting and you're on the road like four or five days a week. So that was an interesting stretch for myself, but also my, my family and my wife was pretty awesome about it, that uh, she was able to uh, support me and I was able to support her and we made it work. And I grew there as well, right? Because there, not only are you facing the customer, but in a lot of cases, you are in the customer's world, right? You're on site, you're there, uh, you're figuring things out. You are the consultant, right? And even if you're not the expert, guess what? You are the expert. And so that helped me grow as well. And again, you know, some traits of being a PM. What are we doing here? Why do you think you have this problem? Let me dig in. Let me try and problem solve. Let me bring different people together. Let me see if I can see things that others aren't seeing or maybe aren't as obvious to others based on my experience. And I really enjoyed it. And part of uh, why I left that, honestly, was because of the travel. It was very taxing on the family. Um, it might be something that I'd be interested in doing later on in my career as my kids grow up and and so forth. Great opportunity and excuse to travel, uh, you know, with you and your your spouse for for relatively inexpensive. But it was also that I got reached out to by a recruiter for kind of a, a transformational thing, new teams they were building, and wound up having a really good interview uh, with the recruiter and then ultimately with uh, with the hiring manager. You know, like when you have a conversation with someone, whether it be an interview or you just meet someone, it's just like, it was easy. That's the best way to say it. Like we just, it was, it was easy to have a conversation. He was very clear on the objectives and why he was, uh, what he was looking for and why he was hiring. I was pretty straight on what I needed as far as, you know, to leave because at that point, I'm always saying it's always good to be open to a conversation. And, and that would be another piece of career advice I would tell you within your career. There's nothing, uh, you know, other than maybe a couple bucks for coffee if you're doing it in person or some minutes over a phone. Open up the possibility of what if to just having a conversation. So that's kind of how that went. I said, okay, I'm not really looking, but let's have it. And I was like, ooh, you kind of sold me on it, right? Again, I was sold on, oh, I that I think that I would really enjoy that. And I got to the point where consulting, right? You're going from the next opportunity to the next opportunity. And you're making sure you're billable. So it wasn't like I was necessarily leaving. I'd done a lot of great things, met a lot of great people. But ultimately, you know, I sat down, me and my wife, we looked at it and decided to go that path. And that kind of led me to also an opportunity with a startup after after that and then, you know, landing at VMware. And honestly, the the reason I wound up at VMware and was very excited is although I was not part of the SaltStack acquisition or SaltStack as a company, I was hired by the former SVP of product and marketing. And my initial goal was to come in here and integrate Salt and SaltStack with the rest of the cloud management platform. And now even further, I'm excited that you know the VCF product is going to be using Salt throughout for configuration compliance management. So I feel an immense amount of pride, the team, both within VMware, 
the folks that came over from Saltback, just an amazing set of people. And again, looking back and being like, well, the way I got the interview here is actually my startup actually did stuff on top of VRA back when it was VRA. And so I had the knowledge of that. And then when I was at EMC, we were doing enterprise hybrid cloud and we were doing turnkey cloud solutions. And again, this evolution of, of cloud, if you will. But it all goes back to that time at IBM when I worked with an individual on that team who I worked with for almost seven years, and we're still friends today. He left six months before I left IBM. And guess where he went? He went to VMware PSO. And we're still friends today. And when I was looking for an opportunity, he was the one that was my referral. And so again, you never know. This, this field, and probably I'm sure others are very similar, we live in a much smaller world than anyone gives us credit for. And so making that mark in distinguishing your brand as a person and being someone that gets stuff done, but also is, is relatively, I'll say easy in the terms of easy because you get it. You're willing to listen. You're willing to dig your feet in when you need to and make your point when you need to. You're willing to, to bend and flex when that's needed. That's what gets you that reputation, that brand. And you're like, hey, when an opportunity comes up, right? I'm sure we have this all, right? You're like, hey, so-and-so would be good for that role. Let me give them a call and see if they're open. And it doesn't always work out that they're open or, or available or even interested, but it's that type of stuff. And so the next job opportunity potentially is, is looking for you, not you looking for it. Timing, timing, timing. Yep. There you go. Network, network, network. Location, location, location. Well, I mean, is it location, location, location if a lot of things are remote? I guess to some extent. I mean, here's the thing. Don't get me wrong. I love remote. There's nothing, though, that replaces physically in front of a whiteboard, people face-to-face, the energy in a room. What I will say is, and, and, and this, is, this is something that I think is hotly debated, right? Do I go into an office to get on a Zoom call or a WebEx or whatever to call someone that is in, you know, to get on a call with people that are in three different countries? You know, from a business perspective, I could see where they might say, listen, we want to co-locate the team and we're going to, like, that's a different strategy. But at the end of the day, I tend to work more when, you know, when I started working from home, I'm sure a lot of us did, because I don't have to commute. I don't have to get offline early to go pick up my kids or drop my kids off or do this. So again, we have to be careful with the technology we have because we should be using it for our benefit and not to take advantage of situation. And, and again, that's remote working, but that goes for anything that people can, can look for uh, technology-wise to use differently, if you will. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point and a great lesson to learn. Hey, Nicholas, as we wrap up here, um, I wanted to reference something that I saw in your LinkedIn title, which was Divergent Thinker. And I, I was super excited. You know, I, I had a couple different assumptions that I had to, you know, break down. One, I thought maybe it was about neurodivergence, which when I looked it up, not true. I also thought that maybe you were like a huge fan of the Divergent movies or maybe the books by Veronica Roth, I think. Also, Diversion Thinker, apparently not that. But could you tell us, you know, what your position on Diversion Thinker is? Yeah, I'm going to preempt it by saying this is kind of part of a branding, right? If you want to think about it, right? Word association. and Oh, like, I bet you have nothing else I've said here, John. You know, I would hope you're like, hey, Nick, Diversion Thinker, right? In that case, but essentially divergent thinking, the way I came up with it is obviously it's a term that's that's used. You can go look it up and so forth and different variations. But I've always 
prided myself on taking a problem and trying to break it down and look at it differently, right? I think it's the conversations that I've had with people and how I see people sometimes struggle with problem solving. And I always ask myself sometimes, are we in a situation, is there a problem, is there a challenge, an opportunity that I can't do or I won't do, right? And again, this is where change comes in. So we kind of come full circle here to the, to the comfort level of change uh, because being a divergent thinker actually is, is highly kind of associated with being willing to be a risk taker. So looking at a problem that sometimes most people look at and say it can't be solved or doesn't see a, a path forward with it. And I don't say this just independently, although divergent thinkers do sometimes tend to think independently, but usually it's then working with people that have the skills and the background, the knowledge that maybe I lack, but kind of like the maestro, if you will, or conductor, right? You can have your brass section, you can have your woodwinds and all that stuff, but you pull it together and you're like, it, the symphony comes together and, and just is, is better than the individual parts. And so being able to work through difficult problems and usually why do people usually have great breakthroughs in technology, startups and so forth? People went off and did stuff that either they weren't given the chance to at other places, had an idea and took a risk on it. People invested in them and took a risk on them and just saw things just a little bit different. And if you think about it, I would say Steve Jobs was a divergent thinker. And, and the way it's easy to say that is if we look back before the iPhone, right, we had the BlackBerry. Everyone loved their BlackBerrys. They even have a documentary on it, right, that people can watch, which is, by the way, Pretty, pretty awesome story and, and fills in some gaps, especially as you're living through it, if anyone's interested. But the point is, you look at something that did not exist before then. And in a lot of ways, people are like, wait, why am I going to have a, a device that I'm going to have in my pocket that doesn't have a physical keyboard? What good is that, right? But he was able to see beyond that. And, and we can go into his, his notions on on and off buttons. But his user experience and, his, and the ecosystem that he helped the culture generate at Apple, I think kind of sums up the divergent thinker in the fact that he did not like anything he saw in the market today. He said, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be different. Now, it may have been, hey, we're going to do this the Apple way, and it certainly has worked out for them. And you know, we can even see that in the way that technology complements other technology or we, I don't want to say steal, we lend and borrow, right? I was a big Android person in the beginning, but it didn't adopt or I wanted something that just worked. It was a phone. But getting back to the diversion thinker, it is about being able to just maybe take something and twist it 90 degrees or 22 degrees or whatever it is to figure out if there's something more there. And from a product perspective, we are always asked to be stretching the boundaries, right? Go get more market share potentially break into a market depending on what your your product is that you're there. Come up with a new way, a whole new product, right? To go after a whole new segment. So it's just a way of thinking about it. And you know, if, if anyone's ever done kind of some whiteboarding where you just put circles and you're starting to connect stuff, that's kind of what it is. And it's trying to say, well, some of these things on the on the surface don't look connected, but maybe they are. But let's explore that and then also the mind mapping aspect of it. But it goes back to what I said earlier, right? Being able to see things that either other people don't see and connect the dots or being able to recognize other people's skills and apply them there. Because I don't have to be good at everything, but I do know people that have passion and are good at other things. 
that, hey, let's work together and I'll learn some from you and you'll learn from me. But ultimately, we're going to do it together. We're just going to be the best of ourselves, right? There's these other notions of instead of trying to work on your weaknesses, which I'm not saying you shouldn't, that's my disclaimer, but that what you should do is embrace and know your strengths and, and work to those, right? And that's what I've used in my career. I've learned things along the way. I've, I've taken weaknesses and grown stuff. And what someone might think of as a weakness may actually be a strength for someone else or for you, depending on how you're using it. Like someone that doesn't ask a lot of questions or someone that does ask a lot of questions. Being able to go out and say, this may be a dumb question, because I know I've said that. I'm sure we've all said that. But it gets people, again, back to that assumption. And let me clarify this. That in itself may be seen as a weakness because I'm not technical in that aspect, but I'm trying to flip it around and say, well, one, I can learn something here. Two, let me kind of challenge your assumptions of what I think you're saying and have you define that for me. So that way we can actually move forward together. And I think it goes back to something that you said earlier, which is, you know, writing down all those things and then have somebody point to it and go, well, that one's not actually true. And there might be a set of cascading, you know, downstream implications of removing something that was an embedded assumption, right? Or an unspoken assumption. And as a PM, I, I always laugh. I say, if, if Microsoft had developed PowerPoint today, and it was kind of a consumption-based model, and they charged by the slide, let's say, the amount of money they would make would be just redonkulous because that is one of the tools. I mean, there's Miro, there's other products, mind mapping stuff out there. But honestly, the de facto go-to or Google Slides or whatever is to go and create a slide to be like, here's kind of what's in my head. I've thrown this up on a sheet so we can all see the crazy thing that's going on in my head. And then other people get involved and then you have a refinement of that. And that's really what it is. I think the magic or what we think is magic when we hear about the, the company that all of a sudden just went public or just got some insane amount of Series A or B funding, that it happened overnight. But behind that is a lot of dedicated people working very hard to get there. And in doing so, I think the way they've achieved it is one, they have the passion, but they also kind of push the boundaries where other people were not comfortable to go. And that's fair that if people don't want to go there, but, but no one's sitting there manufacturing ideas that turn into gold. For, because again, for every one great success story, I'm sure those people, and I know from my experience, we'll tell you about 10 or 12 or more failures, but again, how we adapted that or used that to catapult us forward into the next endeavor. Well, because you showed your work. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and you had something to learn from. If anyone wants to follow up on this conversation, where can they find you? So they can always find me on LinkedIn at Virtual Nick. Uh, they can also uh, email me at nick at arone, A-R-O-N-N-E dot org. Happy to have a conversation or if anyone's looking for mentorship or direction, feel free to reach out. Awesome. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you for having me. to share a brief reminder with everyone listening that we do keep contact information for every guest we've interviewed in the show notes for each episode 
at nerd-journey.com. Be sure and check those out if you'd like to follow up with a guest independent of just listening to their story. I like the idea of being a divergent thinker that Nicholas talked about and thinking through problems differently. But as I was going back through the episode, I think what he shared are a lot of the qualities of a really good manager. Let's recap some of those for you. Part of it was about knowing our strengths and weaknesses. Well, that takes self-awareness and some humility to admit that we don't know everything and humility to say we know certain things better than others. Another part of this was recognizing the skills and experience that other people could bring to the table to help us. Again, this is humility. I need other people's help. And it's also a way to develop others. What if me engaging someone else to help with a project actually gave them the chance to do something they never thought they could do or be a part of something they never got to do before? Perhaps that's something that that person could list on their resume as an experience point to help them progress in their career. I think there's a people development aspect to that collaboration with others. After all, Nicholas did tell us he believes in mentoring and leading future product leaders. Pulling in other people to help you accomplish a goal? Definitely part of developing people. You never know who might ask you to help out with something. Speaking of collaborating with others and working toward a common goal, that helps you develop a reputation. A reputation that you work well with other people. A reputation that you can lead a discussion and help drive consensus from a group. It should be a recognition for yourself that when you're collaborating with other people, that is a form of networking. Whether it be inside your company or outside your company, that is networking. And that's something that Nicholas emphasized during his discussions, the networking with other people, co-workers that remained friends over time and eventually got him new jobs. And if you are someone listening who wants to become a manager at some point, you will have to accept the fact that not every aspect of being a people manager is going to be fun. Things like politics and dealing with those, protecting your team from it, And, of course, things like performance reviews and other administrative duties that managers do that perhaps we don't even see or think about. So maybe if you are someone who falls into the category of divergent thinker, maybe you do have some of the relatable experience to be a people manager if you wanted to go in that direction. Nicholas said we should be open to conversations with people when we get things like unexpected opportunities. If someone recommends us because we have a really good reputation that we've developed for an open role, maybe we should have a conversation with someone else about what that role entails. It may really excite you and cause you to want to go do it. It may cause you to want to say no, but you may build a connection with someone new either way. I like the idea of asking questions around the gaps you know you have, being forthright about, I have this gap in the required experience or the nice-to-have experience, but I have all these other things, will the company or the hiring manager invest in helping me fill that gap, or perhaps will they give me time to fill that skills gap on my own even within a certain period of time? But understanding and knowing how fast you need to ramp up on a specific skill to do the job well or meet the expectation of the hiring team, that's a really important one. And I think it's also an opportunity 
to show your work. Show how you think. Show that you thought through what would make you successful in this role and communicate that to the recruiter or the hiring manager should you get the opportunity to talk to a person like that or maybe even a team member if this were perhaps a technical screen and not a discussion with a hiring manager. If you're someone listening who thinks product management might be a good career move for you, hopefully you heard the part of the discussion where Nicholas was speaking to his consulting experience. Think about what consultants do. They go and they work intimately with customers to solve a problem, usually centered around a specific area of expertise, right? The consultant is supposed to be an expert. And even if they are an expert, they're going to have to collaborate with probably more than one person on a team at a specific company to accomplish that. They need to understand what the customer is trying to do, and they need to make sure that they are delivering the outcomes that that customer wants. And the consultant ultimately owns the delivery of the outcome that that customer wants. And you're working with many different customers when you're a consultant. So you get exposure to different types of environment very much like a product manager would need the exposure to customers within the market for the product that they are building. So I do think that there is a progression path here highlighted from consultant to product management. If we were to show our work and build a visual for this episode, there would certainly be a path between those two. If you enjoyed the discussion with Nicholas Arone and are wanting to learn more or hear stories of other people who've gone into product management, go check out the series of episodes we did with David Babbitt, episode 195, 196, and 197 for some good insight on the product manager role. We'll see you next week. Farewell listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at Be Journeyman. For Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore, signing off. Adios.